Chapter 16. Verse 16. Now as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl met us and had a spirit that enabled her to foretell the future by supernatural means. She brought her owners a great profit by fortune telling. She followed behind Paul and us and kept crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued to do this for many days. But Paul became greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And he came out of her at once. This woman is possessed, obviously. And this is not an uncommon thing in most of the world, especially in the ancient world, um, for people to be possessed or at least in connection to the spiritual realm or doing magic. And so she's fortune telling. Obviously, there's no way she can know the future like God. And there's no way that fortune tellers can do that. However, the demonic world can't make things happen. Okay? They're, they're con artists. Some, they have power, and they know a lot of things that we don't know. But they're also limited by time and space and all that kind of stuff, just like we are. It's just they're more powerful. And in a certain sense, we all have the ability to, quote, fortune tell the future, if we really put our mind towards it. For example, a lot of times when these people who are connected to the spiritual realm and they foretell things, a lot of times it's injuries or harmful things. That's usually what they predict. Because if they predict something harmful, remember they really do want to harm you, and then they're right, that seems to stand out even more to us. Uh, because they're trying to fill us with fear. And they want to cripple you with fear so you become utterly dependent upon them. Anybody can really do that. Like if I was really calloused and bloodthirsty... I could basically say, in two days, you're going to break your kneecap, right? And then I could pay somebody to find you and hit you in the knee with a baseball bat and break your kneecap. And most people don't connect those things like, they just know, oh my gosh. I mean, it's an emotional, physical, traumatic experience. And when you get flooded with emotions and pain, you don't tend to think logically. And then somebody predicted in the future and you just begin to think, wow. This person was right. And then if I do enough times, people tend to get hooked. Rather than thinking, well, if he was really malicious, he probably could have made that happen himself. And that's usually how the demonic world works. There are lots of people, spirits and humans, that are in their control or influence. And they can make things happen that they predicted. That's why it's really important when you test the spirits and ask them to predict things, that you ask them to do things or give signs. You shouldn't really be asking anybody predicting things. But if they say that they have the power to predict something, then they need to do, predict something that only God can pull off. Only God can pull off. There is a limit to human and demonic power. And this is most likely probably something what she's doing. Studying the occult and these kind of people for a very long time, it typically is prediction of harmful things, accidents or that kind of stuff. And most likely she's predicting something and the demonic world is in on it, making it happen in some kind of way to their power. And whether she realizes that this is all con on their behalf or whether she's bought into it too, remember she is possessed and her mind is probably very clouded by this. She's doing this. So just because she has the power to do certain things, to lead people astray, does not mean that this is a power that rivals Yahweh or that is equal to Yahweh in any kind of way. We need to protect ourselves from the extremes. The extreme of thinking, because the demonic world has the power to do things, that they are equal to 
or greater than God and his power. Yes, they're powerful, but they're not in comparison to God. But we also need to protect ourselves from going to the extreme and say, well, no, that's possible. There's not a spiritual realm. They can't really do that. Really, do you honestly believe they can do that? Well, are humans capable of doing incredible, powerful things? Yes. I mean, we figured out how to split an atom and basically blow up an entire city. If we have that kind of power, then so does the demonic realm. And so we need to protect ourselves from these extremes of, no, that didn't happen, that's superstitious, versus, oh, they're equal to God. And neither one are accurate. It's more in between, and I don't mean dead center in between, just somewhere in the middle. She is making her owners lots of money. Lots of money. That also shows you that this is corrupt. We were at the mall, and my wife was like, ooh, a jewelry store, let's go in there. And we walked in there, and we realized it was like some new age crystal kind of a thing. Couldn't quite tell through the glass and at a distance, and so we walked in, there's all this new age stuff, and my oldest daughter was like, this is creepy and weird, and I get a weird vibe from all this. And, and kudos to her, I was the same way because I don't like that kind of stuff. She's like, we should probably get out of here. There's probably something spiritual going on here. We did. We walked out. And I was like, I mean, I was about ready to walk out anyways, but she beat me to that comment. I was very happy and proud in that moment. Um, but we talked about that. that they, they believe that these crystals have healing powers and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, my youngest is like, well, that's not really true, right? And I was like, well, no, but there are some demonic beings who can maybe heal you a little bit like a doctor can heal you in certain ways and try to convince you that it was the crystal. And so then my middle daughter said, well, if it really did work, why aren't they in the hospitals healing people? Why are they charging for all this? And so it was like, yeah, welcome to a con artistry. And whether that woman who ran the shop believed in the power of the crystals, most likely she did. But it's still, and these crystals, they just look like quartz from your countertop. And they were going for like 50 bucks, like a little one. I was like, yeah. There's, it's because it has spiritual power in it. That's the markup. But that's, that's what this is. This is about money. This is purely about money on the human part and purely about destroying you and your life on the demonic part. That's what it's all about. Because if they really did care, they would be in the hospital, children's hospital and other places with all their crystals going room to room. She continued many days, and finally, I love this. Paul became greatly annoyed. It's his frustration in this moment. And his frustration comes out, and he rebukes the demon. Now notice the demons know exactly who Paul is. They know who he's connected to. I find this very interesting. As much as humans deny Yahweh and his existence, or his all-powerfulness, I have never encountered a demon through a testimony or a story that ever has denied the absolute power and legitimacy of God, Yahweh. They never have. They deny whether he has a good character or not. They usually call him a child eater or some evil demonic thing, and they say, oh, but we'll help you. Okay? But they don't ever deny the legitimacy of God's power or his existence. They deny his character. That's what they, even the serpent in the garden did not say, there's no Yahweh up there. He said, he's not good, and he's keeping things from you. That's what they typically deny. It's humans that deny God's power and existence. It is not the demonic world. 
Or they'll deny the judgment of God, that there is no judgment in the afterlife. You can just follow your heart, do it, just do it, have it your way. Don't you dare judge me. So he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her once. That's the absolute power. Remember, this isn't a magical phrase. This is what we're going to see later. This is not a magical phrase in the name of Jesus, like a Harry Potter incantation and wand. There are people, many people, who have used this phrase and it has not worked for them. And there are people who use it and it does. Paul truly has a relationship with God. And Paul truly believes in the power of God. And so when he is invoking this phrase, he is not using a phrase in a magical way. He is invoking a personal being that he knows who has given him the authority to do these things. And all Christians have this authority as long as we exercise it in the way that God has given it to us for the right reasons. And the Spirit immediately leaves. Immediately leaves. But when her owners saw that their hope of profit had gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us to accept or practices since we are Romans. Where the Jews had persecuted the disciples for threatening their theological beliefs and their center of power over a people religiously, the Greeks are attacking them because the Christians are threatening their source of money. Completely different cultures, completely different religions, completely different way of doing the religions, and yet, in a way, they're both attacking for the same reason. One is about absolute power and authority over people to control them, and the other one is the power of money and finances to make yourself successful and profitable. And so when they saw that their profit had been taken away from them, they got mad. Now, this is also interesting. They're willing for this woman, this girl, to be enslaved to a demonic presence in order to, be, to make money. To make money. And so they get angry, and they drag in the market street, and then they accuse Paul of ruining their businesses, of creating chaos, and going against customs that they believe in. Most likely, they're probably angry at Paul for the lack of money now, for threatening their profits. But then, knowing that, eh, I'm just greedy and want more money, it maybe not go over very well with the public, then they go to the fact that Paul's been teaching one God and one God only. And he would say, well, why, why is that a threat? Remember, the emperor requires emperor worship. And that would be a threat against Rome. Anybody who says, I don't need to worship him, I don't need to burn incense to him, would be considered a threat. Why did Paul and them get annoyed that the girl just kept following them around, that kind of stuff? That's a great question. Why didn't Paul just immediately cast the demon out? I don't know. Maybe he was waiting for God's permission and leading. Very likely that's a possibility he was waiting for God's leading. It's not like he can just go around and just smack you on the head and bop, 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 heal, heal, heal. That could be a strong possibility. Why is he annoyed? If you have somebody following you around all the time, screaming at the top of their lungs that you're from God, da 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 that's going to be annoying after a while, especially if you're trying to truly minister to people and that kind of stuff and truly have authentic. And then probably most likely, 
as he's trying to preach, this girl is screaming, yelling so loud. And I don't mean like a blood curdling kind of scream, but just a very top of the line. Have you seen the videos where people will go to universities and talk about like they'll defend life and they'll go against abortion and that kind of stuff. And then people will come in and just scream and yell at them the entire time. And you can barely hear what they're saying. And they know they have nothing legitimate to contribute to the debate. So they just try to drown out the debate. Most likely that's probably what's happening here. And so Paul is probably annoyed by that. Why would they not want the testimony of the Nemans? Because you don't want false. You don't want testimony from bad sources. This is exactly what Jesus did. Even when demons came and said, you are the son of God, Jesus said, be silent. And he would immediately cast the demon out. Because the last thing you want to say is, and the demons also believe in this too. Okay, that's, that's not good propaganda. And so it's like, if you're corrupt and you're a murderer and a thief, and you're like, and I trust this guy, follow him. Um, I don't want your testimony as a murderer and a thief and that kind of stuff. So that's probably most likely why he doesn't want her to speak. So good question. Verse 22, the crowd joined the attack against them, and the magistrates tore the clothes off of Paul and Silas and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they'd been beaten severely, they threw them into prison and commanded the jailer to guard them securely. Receiving such orders, he threw them into the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Not only would it be humiliating to be stripped down naked or within a certain level of nakedness and then beat with rods, this would be incredibly humiliating to a Jew. In the Roman culture, they have no problem going around naked. Nakedness is a very common, in public life. Um, going down the streets, the brothels were often just right there next to their version of Target, and people were naked, that kind of stuff. They wore very thin, scantily clothed. But for a Jew, even showing your ankles is considered sexually scandalous, even for a male. And so to be stripped down in this kind of way and then being beaten is just humiliation, it's, it's pain, it's suffering, it's persecution on so many different levels. And this isn't illegal either for a crowd to technically do this in a lot of ways. Now, it's all a matter about laws. Like, what city you particular are you in? Are you in just a Roman city? Are you in a Roman providence? Are you in a Roman free city? Are they just a everyday normal person? Are they everyday normal Jew? Are they a Roman? Are they a Roman citizen? There's all these different levels of what makes it legal and not legal. But they probably would view the Jews, all Jews are seen as like lower class citizens. In fact, most Jews weren't even citizens of the Roman Empire. So there would probably be, my guess in a lot of ways, this isn't completely illegal in many ways. And knowing the Roman government being so corrupt, many of them times they would just turn another eye, and even if it was illegal, and just let it go. Now once again, Paul's being beaten. Remember with this is with a lictor's rod and not with flogging. So it would be painful. It would be like somebody hitting you with a stick. I'm not saying like, oh, it's not that big of a deal, Paul. I'm not saying it at all. But this isn't the flogging that just literally skins all the flesh and the muscles off of your body. And then they were fastened in stocks. So now they've been beaten, but by being shackled into wooden stocks, you've been bruised up, and there's only like certain positions you can sit in that actually feel comfortable. The stocks would force you to not be in those positions. And that would make it even more uncomfortable. And stiffness would set in even more, which becomes painful in itself. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. 
That's incredible. And the rest of the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly a great earthquake occurred so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors flew open and the bonds of all the prisoners came loose. And when the jailer woke up and saw that the doors of the prison standing opening, he threw his sword and was about to, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he assumed the prisoners had escaped. Everything just like earthquake, shackles fall off, stocks open up, jail sword doors fly open, even all the prisoners are all unshackled. Everybody indiscriminately is unshackled in this miraculous thing. And it's midnight, so they're, they're in a dungeon or a prison, so there's not much light. They would probably hear all the clinging. You feel the shackles come off. You, jail says there's probably a little bit of light. And the jailer doesn't really know who's gotten away, how many people have gotten away, that kind of stuff. But he assumes that if prison doors are flying open, people are running for their lives, right? And so we already talked about this. If you can't keep prisoners, then it's your life for their life, and you're instantly killed. Rather than facing trial, he's going to kill himself. Now, why would he do this? You'd be like, what? This is an honor-shame culture. And if you mess up, it doesn't just bring shame to you. It brings shame to your family. And it brings shame to the people around you. And then that shame is going to financially affect them. It's going to lower their status in the culture, which means they're going to always be in the back of the line for medical treatment whenever they go somewhere else. Their, their, their pay is automatically going to be decreased in some kind of way. They're automatically going to be excluded in certain ways in the market. Or they might even be, the prices will be jacked up for them, but not the person next to them, because they have brought shame upon the community. And one of the only ways to protect yourself from that public humiliation is to commit suicide. And by committing suicide, you also restore the honor back to everything. So you die in shame, but your family is protected from the dishonor. And you see this in Eastern, especially like in Japan. That's not saying everybody in Japan is like that, but they used to be like that. Um, where this idea of reciprocal um, suicide was a way of restoring honor back to your family so that they would not have a horrible life. And so in this way, it's like either I can be shamed and my name be dragged through the mud after my death and suicide, or we can all be shamed and dragged through the mud all throughout our lives together as a family. And so he does this because he wants to protect himself. But Paul called out loudly, do not harm yourself. For we are all here. Now that's interesting too, because not only has God freed all these prisoners, but they're, they're, they're not running. I mean, yes, we can understand how Paul and Silas would be obedient to the Spirit of God, but these prisoners all don't have the Holy Spirit. Why? They're not obedient, which means something is compelling them to stay. Well, I don't mean something. The Holy Spirit is compelling them to stay, whether they understand what it is or not. And so Paul says, don't do this. Now, once again, over and over again, we see this throughout the Bible, where Paul or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or Daniel have every right to hate the people that have done this to them and imprisoned them and have every reason to say, it's my turn. And in some cases, justly say, it's my turn. And yet, there's always this care and provision for them. And, and, and watching out for them just as much as everybody else which is a complete contrast to the money makers off of the possessed girl. It's a complete contrast. 
Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Calling for the lights, the jailer rushed in and fell down, trembling at the feet of Paul and Silas. And then he brought them outside and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? How much of the gospel has he heard? I mean, Silas and Paul have been singing for God knows how long. I'm sure there's a, there, the gospel is in the lyrics because well-written songs have good theological messages. And so there's lyrics in there and that kind of stuff. And he's been listening to this, probably in some kind of way, sitting outside of it, the prison. And then all of a sudden he sees this raw power, a power that he's never seen from the pagan gods. This far supersedes the, the, the power of even this possessed girl, any other possessed girl or a human or man that he's ever seen in any kind of way. And so between hearing all these theological words about the exclusivity and the primacy of Yahweh and then seeing the raw power here and then hearing songs about the love and the compassion of God and then seeing it demonstrated by Paul and Silas, the love and compassion for him, this is all that it takes. This is all it takes. Amos says, what, what must I do to be saved? I want this God. I want this God. So they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. How simple. In Greek mythology, it would be, well, not mythology. I mean, it wasn't mythology for them. In the Greek world, in the Greek way of thinking, it would be, well, you've got to go here, make this sacrifice, and do that, and jump through this hoop, and then actually you can't really be saved because the gods don't like you, care about you, and there is no guarantee of salvation, that kind of stuff. But you can spend the rest of your life doing this and this and this and this and this and this, just hoping that maybe the big bully on the playground, the god, doesn't just notice you and then beat the crap out of you and actually allows you to have a decent life in the Elysium afterlife, right? And he says, believe, and there's a guarantee, and there's life. Follow, have faith. That's it. This would have been mind blowing. Almost like, really? I've never heard that in my entire life. Are you serious? Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and along with all those who were in his house. And at that hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds, and then he and all of his family were baptized right away. So this jailer brings them to his family. And then they preached him. The family becomes saved. And then the jailer begins to nurse Paul and Silas back to health and take care of them. The jailer brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced greatly that he had come to believe in God together with his entire household. So he not only puts his faith and belief in God, but then he's baptized, which is the clear evidence of salvation here. Not that being baptized saves you, but in the context of Acts, Baptism is an outward evidence and proof of being saved. It will not be until much later that this is going to get conned or um, done in different ways. And so he begins to feed them and take care of them. At daybreak, the magistrates sent their police officers saying, Release those men. The jailer reported those words to Paul saying, The magistrates have, magistrates have set out, sent orders to release you. So come out now and go in peace. They have no idea that this escape is happening. And this is the irony. The incredibly politically powerful elite have no idea what has happened in their own prisons. And their power over Paul and Silas has been completely undermined. And now Paul and Silas are in the house of just an everyday normal person being attended to and having fellowship. And the magistrates haven't experienced any of this. The the, The jailer says, hey, 
we'd come to release you. But Paul said to the police officers, they had us beaten in public without a proper trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us in prison, and now they want to send us away secretly. Absolutely not. They themselves must come and escort us out. The police officers reported these words to the magistrates, and they were frightened when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and they came and apologized to them. And after they brought them out, they asked them repeatedly to leave the city. And when they came out of the prison, they entered Lydia's house, and when they saw the brothers, they encouraged them, and then they departed. This is the first of two major times in the book of Acts that Paul is going to reveal his Roman citizenship. It is not common for Jews to be Roman citizens. Most of the Jews were in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was considered, or in Judea, Jerusalem was considered a backwatered, miserable, annoying gnat around the Roman Empire all the time that nobody wanted anything to do with, and they would not pass out citizenship that often. Paul, we're going to find out later, was born into his Roman citizenship. And there's actually rankings of Roman citizenship as well. The more noble your family is by birth, the more high-ranking your Roman citizenship is. If you were born into a low ranking, then it's not as high. If you had to pay for your Roman citizenship, it's not as high. There's all these different rankings. Paul says he's a Roman citizen. And what this meant was, you're a citizen of Rome in the same way that you're a citizen of America. And you just can't just, you can't punish, jail, or beat in any kind of a way a Roman citizen without trial. Without trial. And they haven't given a trial. And Roman citizens were protected from this. Other people, it didn't matter. Other people, it didn't matter. And so it's beaten. The question is, why didn't Paul say this to begin with? Most likely, he may not have time. I don't know. No, probably a lot of people in here have not faced an angry mob of people trying to come at them and kill them. But you can only imagine how scary and panicky that would be. And you've seen movies, and you've watched the news, and you've watched Ohio State burn down their own campus after a Michigan loss, right? And you would probably imagine, like, if that was barreling down on you, you're going to probably spend most of your time, like, trying to protect yourself. And even if you are screaming a Roman citizen, how much are people really going to hear you when they're yelling and screaming and dragging you down and beating you? And so most likely he didn't have a chance to say this. How would he prove it? He may have carried a testatio. This is a certified private copy of evidence of his Roman citizen, and it was inscribed on a wax surface of a wooden diptych. Okay, so it was probably a little wooden plate that would have a wax surface that it would be carved as a seal or some kind of thing that he would carry around and prove, kind of like the badge of a cop or your driver's license or something like that. And it would prove that you're Roman citizenship, and that's how he would validate it. The other possibility is he doesn't have any proof of this, but most people wouldn't dare claim that they had Roman citizenship and not have Roman citizenship, because this is punishable by death to claim that you were a Roman citizen and you weren't. And Rome, there is no end to Rome's jurisdiction in the Mediterranean world. And everybody knows what Rome does to people. Crucifixions and impalings and being skinned alive and all being burned at the stake. All horrible, horrible, painful things. Floggings. Most people would not dare claim something like that. 
Other people have asked the question, and we'll talk about this in a lot more detail when we get to the second claim of Paul's Roman citizenship. But other people have said, well, why doesn't he just kind of go around all the time, like with his driver's license, just out in front all the time? Like this would open up so many doors and, and give him so much access to the thing. And then he would become so well known as the person with the Roman citizenship, no one would ever come close to this because he gets beaten a lot. And you're like, Paul, just like, staple this thing to your chest because that's less painful than getting beaten all the time because you're not pulling out your ID, right? Because Paul first and foremost saw himself as a citizen of the kingdom of God and not the Roman Empire. And Rome was so scary of what it could do to you if you didn't go in line, align with them. And they were so influential and making people, oh, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll do what you want. I believe that, yeah, yeah, in order to protect themselves. Or, oh, will this get me special privileges? Will I move up higher in the ranks if I agree with you as the Roman Empire? Can you imagine if Paul just constantly flaunted that he was a Roman citizen and preached the gospel? How many people would falsely just accept the gospel because they were like, I don't want Rome to crush me, but they find out I'm rejecting what a Roman citizen says I should believe in. How many people would say, oh, this will give me special privileges if I go along with Rome, and maybe I'll be exempt from certain things, or my family can move up the ranks, right? How many people just say, well, if it was good enough for a Roman citizen, it's good enough for me? I mean, that's how celebrities work, right? It's like, well, if Jay-Z and Rihanna or Robin Williams or something like that are doing it, then... Don't I want to do that? Wouldn't I want that? Paul was very, very, very careful of how often and how many people he told that he was a Roman citizen because he wanted the gospel to carry its own weight. And he wanted people, I mean, right? We already saw with Simon Magus that when he saw the miracles, he was already trying to buy salvation. And that was out without the Roman citizenship attached to it. And so Paul is willing to suffer for Christ. He's willing to not flaunt his Roman citizenship in order to make sure that conversions are legit, interest is legit, that people are truly transformed by the authority of God and being connected, their connecting their identity to the kingdom of God and not because of the Roman Empire, whether desire for reward or an escape of a punishment or whatever. And the only time that Paul ever seems to really say, they write only two major times in the whole book of Acts and the whole ministry of Paul, does he ever really claim that he's a Roman citizen is when he really seriously sees his life in danger or that he's going to be detained in prison for such a long time that the gospel can't get out. He'll have no problem being in the prisons of the high-ranking Roman prisons because he's going to be right next to the Praetorian Guard. The, 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 the Roman Empire's version of the secret service, right? And in that sense, he can convert them and then he'll move up the ranks. But when you're put in prison in little small villages or small towns or cities, you tend to be in prisons all by yourself. Sometimes there might be another prisoner here or there, but you tend to be in them all by yourself because they're small cities. And most people were only in prison for overnight waiting their trial. And trial, there, were, there was no long red tape, right? Like you heard of these trials and you're like a year later, like that trial finally ended, <laughs> like, right? That didn't happen. In the Roman Empire, 
most people didn't have a trial. They were just immediately punished. Murderers and thieves and that kind of stuff were often executed or exiled or body parts cut off. And usually trials happen pretty instantaneously because they didn't want to afford to pay people to guard you. And they didn't want to pay for prisons and jails and penitentiaries. So they would just either kill you. And most of the time, the only time you would ever go to prison and stay there for a long time is if you were a political prisoner. They wanted to make you disappear. And so, um, like the Chateau d'If of um, France. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, watch The Count of Monte Cristo, or better yet, read the book. The book is phenomenal. It's a big book, though. Most of the time, Paul is only going to pull this card out when he really believes that the gospel is going to be hindered in some kind of way because he's being detained or beaten because of the gospel. And that's why he only really reveals this two times, really, here. The people were immediately freaked because they just beat a man down within an inch of his life, metaphorically. I don't know how many inches he was away from death, but pretty severely beaten. And he's been wrongfully in prison. And they were going to bring him out for probably execution. And he turns out to be a Roman citizen. And now they're scared because they can lose all their status. When the Roman government finds out about this, they're going to lose all their statuses. Rome is going to crush them because Rome is highly invested in not only crushing every um, rebellion and all that kind of stuff, but they're highly invested also in making sure Roman citizenship is protected because it has to mean something. And so people violate, they're going to crush you in every kind of a way. And so they basically say, we're so sorry, we're so sorry. Get out of the city, please. Because he's a stain on their reputation, a stain on their city. And they don't want him anywhere around. And then, like, if they get him out of the city, then there's fewer people to see him, fewer rumors to spread. And if he get, they get him out of the city as fast as possible, then he disappears. And then maybe it just becomes a rumor and hearsay that eventually disappears and that kind of stuff. And like the media, you can always come up with another scandal to distract everybody's attention to something else and they completely forget about it. And so that's what they're hoping. But if Paul keeps sticking around and preaching, then you, you can't get the people to choose the, change the channel, so to speak. He's always there. But Paul doesn't leave. He just goes to Lydia's house. And he continues to minister in the city at this time. Luke is not trying to make it sound like the Jews were the only people attacking the gospel. A lot of people have accused the Bible of being anti-Semitic, which is so ironic because our God is Semitic. Um, at least Jesus' part is. And they, they often accuse this of being anti-Jews. Yet, you can see that the Roman Empire and the people of the Roman Empire are just as guilty of persecution as anybody else. 